a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. We'll be joined by Dr. Rashid Batar momentarily. I've got to get things going here. Can't wait. And uh, he'll be uh, joining us uh, again shortly. So uh, we've got an open story here I just want to get to real quick uh, because I know that Dr. Batar is sweating. He's been working overtime, getting you all well and getting ready for the Advanced Medicine Conference. Uh, but there is a story from our buddy at uh, Sarah G at Green Med Info. I want to show you this real quick. And it talks about confirming that sweating, the act of sweating, or you ladies, perspiring, Right is removing deadly chemicals from the body, right? How many of y'all in the wintertime are actually working hard enough to work up a good sweat? Or even in the springtime when it's transitioning. I know that summer you can get out there and sweat. And some people don't like to sweat, but it could be a life-saving mechanism. In fact, it is a life-saving mechanism in your body. Not only cool you off, but to remove toxins that are otherwise stuck in your body, fat-soluble otherwise in the skin, and they can be pushed out through the pores of your skin. So if you're not sure how to do this, how to sweat in the, in the wintertime, how about a sauna? Plug into our friends at Synergy Science, and if you go to robertscottbell.com, you can click the links there to go to Synergy Science, and you'll actually see the Synergy Sauna in addition to key technologies. And if you go there, I'm just scrolling down to show you different places you can go, uh, including uh, robertswater.com. You can find the Synergy Sauna there, and you can sweat. Now, I normally don't take a break this early in the show, but I just got word Dr. Batar has arrived in studio. In order for me to plot him into the shots, I've got to take a quick break. Y'all, don't go anywhere. I'm grateful for you. We have a lot of healing and a lot of discussion to do with Dr. Rasha Batar. And in the meantime, we're going to remind you how to protect yourself from harmful electromagnetic frequencies, including 5G. Back in a moment with Dr. Rasha Batar after this. All right, Dr. Batar is with us now. Advanced medicine has officially begun, my friend. I was just talking about sweating, and I, I see you're running around like crazy. You must be sweating a little bit, but that's good. That's good. I am sweating, actually, Robert, believe it or not. I do believe it. I know what kind of pace you're on, not only helping folks that are co- you know, coming to see you to get well, but also the Advanced Medicine Conference coming up and everything in between, all the webinars. I mean, I, I, I'm just getting stressed talking about all the things you're doing. Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually sitting here right now trying to figure out where the feed's coming from, and now I finally discovered it, but it was kind of it was kind of uh, insane what was just not happening. But, yeah, there's like 17 different moving parts right now, and I don't know what is happening when, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to have to actually close it. For the people that are on Facebook, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to close you guys down and come back in a second. But go ahead, Robert. Let's see what we're going to start talking about. No problem. And everybody's welcome to join us on, live on YouTube or listening through naturalnewsradio.com. Uh, Dr. Rashi Bittar with me, advancedmedicine.com. We have links in the show notes, of course, at robertscottbell.com to all the things we're going to be talking about. I was just mentioning about the importance of sweating more than just for cooling off the body when it's hot outside. I mean, I purposefully sweat in the winter via far infrared saunas, things like that, because it is part of the process of detoxification. It's not an abnormal process. It's a normal process, but 
Most people who live a sedentary life, and especially in the winter, never get warm enough to sweat. That's not good. No, it's not, actually. And the sweating process is a, is a the natural part and parcel of the detoxification process. So it's, it's anything we can do to sweat is actually beneficial. So when we talk about uh, things that they find coming out in sweat, I mean, this is what our friend Sayer G is talking about. It's, it's validating the removal of, like, heavy metals, persistent organic pollutants. I'm not saying it's the only way to get it out, but would you want to just eliminate a massive organ called the skin, the largest that you have, as a means by which you can reduce the burden on the rest of your system, including liver, kidneys, etc.? Absolutely not. In fact, that's the reason that in the head map, as you very well know, Robert, the focus of the head map is the organ of detoxification. That's why the acronym of head map stands for Advanced Health Evaluation and Assessment for Detoxification Medical Assessment Program. And we're looking at the kidneys, the liver, the gut, and the skin. That's one of the things that we zero in on. Now, of course, there's other things, too, that we look at, but uh, kidneys, liver, gut, and skin are the four primary organs of detoxification that we're focused in on with the head map. Right. So in, in terms of, uh, I don't know, when you write a prescription, of course, most doctors write prescriptions for drugs. You might be writing it for, you need to sweat a little bit. In addition to what we're doing to get the garbage out, you could help yourself by, obviously, exercise would be ideal. But again, sometimes in the winter, unless you're really bundled up, it, it, it is a challenge for a lot of folks that are maybe moving from sedentary to gradually getting back to activity. So one of the ways, although some would say, well, that's passive, you're just sitting down. Again, the benefits of sweating are validated in the peer-reviewed literature, not that we were waiting for that. But again, everything that we see at Green Med Info, it, he validates everything about this. That only strengthens our resolve to say how it's one of the most vital pathways of elimination that is just kind of ignored by most. Yeah, it is a, a very important pathway of detoxification. It's a, it's a necessary, it's a large... The skin actually covers the largest surface area of the, of the body. Obviously, um, when you look at it from a size perspective, the, the integumentary system is the largest by far of the, of the organ of detoxification. Now, some may contest that by saying that the gastrointestinal system may have the largest surface area when you take the entire small bowel and large bowel and you, you know, cut it open and spread it out. Maybe, maybe it would exceed the skin. But if, if it does, I think the skin would definitely be the second if it's not the largest organ of detoxification. Yeah, in terms of surface area, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, too. That's why we do talk about it. And certainly in the head map, it goes heavily into that, that the GI tract, restoring the integrity of the lining itself and the home for the microbiome, much less the microbiome itself, all of that plays a role in recovery and healing. And, you know, the iron, I say irony of this, but there is a story that uh, Superdon sent today, and it talks about the microbiome. Uh, may be key to autism symptoms. Now, I know that these headlines are a little oversimplified. You might say that's an over understatement to say that. But, you know, as much as we've focused and you have focused on heavy metals, in particular mercury, we are now seeing more evidence that aluminum is only adding to the mess, that the microbiome itself, the damage to the microbiome, exacerbates the activity of these metals wherever they are, including in the GI tract. Yeah, so I think this is one of those components now. We, it's almost like what came first, the chicken or the egg type of scenario. Mm -hmm. um, to say that the microbiome is helping to create some of these issues with the metals versus the metals are causing an imbalance in the ecosystem, creating that dysbiosis, and then propagating certain 
species to uh, grow more. Like, like, for example, if you have an immunosuppressive agent, then the natural immune system is not going to be working right. So then the things such as opportunistic uh, yeast infections, fungi, for example, will no longer have anything to control its growth, so it'll start to it'll grow rampantly, mm-hmm. even though you wouldn't, expect, you wouldn't expect something to allow, you know, you think, okay, but something like mercury would cause everything to die off. That's not necessarily right. true. It'll cause certain things to die off, and other things will end up growing because there's well, nothing. Well, trying to sequester it, right? And, and right. It, you know, what's interesting, this is coming from the uh, Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, and they compared children with autism and to their unaffected siblings. And, and they said the investigators found that clear differences emerged in the children's microbiome, right? This is like, again, this is maybe validating a little bit about the observations of uh, Dr. Andy Wakefield, who was destroyed simply for observing and reporting on the gastrointestinal inflammation of kids who had the MMR. And they also happened to be autistic. This wasn't about even mercury at the time. But here you have clear, uh, you know, validation to things you've seen as well in these children, you know, you don't find a child with autism that has optimally functioning, healthy gut microbiome and, and motility and all the good movement out of the body that, uh, uh, you know, the regular bowel movements occur. They're not occurring in these children. Right. That's exactly right. Uh, so there's, there's so many different components here, Robert. So one, you've got some of these metals can end up acting as essential minerals but they're not essential minerals so they don't function correctly but the body picks them up and uses them as the enzymatic cofactors that normally minerals would be used for but because the metals displace those minerals then they end up getting sequestered if you will and utilized but it it's not efficient it's not it doesn't work right it, it alters and and creates a, it's like throwing a wrench into the engine so now it's not working correctly so th- there is an issue of that going on here that's part of it but Essentially, I would think that that is, in my opinion, based upon my clinical observation, I would not say that it's the microbiome that's throwing off the metals or the metals that are throwing off the... I would think it's more the metals that are throwing off the microbiome rather than the microbiome throwing off the metals. Yeah, I think, I think you, you talk about a chicken-egg scenario. Again, this comes back to what Bruce Lipton and others are, are going to you know, present, as, as we've been talking about for years. The environment determines what grows there. Right. And yep. if you throw heavy metals, which is considered a toxic pollutant, I think for most people I could, would consider it, you're exactly. going to alter whatever was there before. It isn't that you even have to catch something from outside. That's the interesting thing. You literally can alter the life forms that are already there by adding things like mercury. And I mean, it just changes what grows there. Yeah, that's exactly right, because the entire balance, the entire ecosystem there is going to get thrown off. So the best way of thinking about it is if you have um, a forest with uh, rabbits and foxes and wolves and, you know, the entire, the entire ecosystem, the rabbits eat the grass and then um, the foxes eat the rabbits or the coyotes eat the rabbits. And so you've got this balance. But if you take any of those, if you run out of grass, now all of a sudden the rabbit population will die off because there's not enough food for them. And then the coyotes are going to starve because there's no more rabbits to feed them and so it throws off the whole system or if you end up having uh too many too many um coyotes or foxes out there and they eat all the rabbits now there's not enough checking on the there's not enough rabbits eating the grass and now you have a a growth surge of all the grass and now the foxes are just going to end up dying because they have nothing else so it you have to have that perfect ecosystem and I'm kind of making a rudimentary component to trying to make it, trying to explain it, but I think everybody gets the idea. That's one reason that, you know, even though um, I'm not a hunter, I agree that hunters should be 
utilized to be able to keep the deer populations checked to maintain that balance in the ecosystem. It's all about balance. And as soon as the balance gets thrown off, then you cause all sorts of other havoc to occur. And that's what you're talking about, other species and other um, uh, things that are that are not in the normal balance start to appear and sure. just throws everything off. And would it be uh, presumptuous of me to say, man, so arrogant that just destroys the environment and then goes... See, it's the germ. The germ yeah. did it. It's the virus. The virus did. You know, think about um, in terms of you got a, a forest, right? Or you really rely on that forest for a lot of things. But, hey, man, the money comes in. They say, man, give us that forest. Cut it down. We'll give you a lot of money. And this happened, for instance, in Haiti, right? Well forested, like the Dominican Republic. Same island. The other half completely yeah. stripped bare, right, for whatever purposes, again, illicit or otherwise. And now that ecosystem is just devastated during floods. Or There's no soil. Being, you talk about sewage, hygiene, you know, cholera, all the things that the Dominican Republic, same island, not having because they didn't destroy their forest, their ecosystem, etc. I think that's just one example that comes to mind of man's arrogance in not considering this and destroying himself in the process. That's exactly right. So what's happening with the Congo and with the Amazon, you know, that's the lungs of the planet and how they're just destroying um, the, the lungs of the planet. Because remember, trees, plants, they breathe out oxygen, which we need, and they breathe in carbon dioxide, which we breathe out. So we, we have a perfect symbiotic uh, balance between animal life and plant life. But now you start to cut down all these trees and you know, hundreds of thousands of acres a day, and you're basically cutting off the lungs of the planet. Well, it's the same thing that man's doing in the in, inside uh, inside the body, right? We go in there with these drugs that we annihilate our balance. We start to not recognize how intricate the balance is, and we start using every. I mean, just if you look at all the drugs, almost all drugs block something, right? You've got calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors. Every drug is somehow designed to stop a process. Whereas, conversely speaking, natural substances usually enhance, upregulate. They they open up pathways. And so from a general uh, standpoint, pharmaceutical synthetic substances will block pathways, whereas natural substances enhance pathways. And that's what we should be focusing in on is to enhance pathways so that we can open up the system and allow it to function the way that the creator designed us to function. And the arrogance of man, just like you mentioned about the forest and, you know, we're talking about the Congo and the Amazon, we're doing the same thing inside our bodies. We're annihilating the environment. And, but with all these different antibiotics and all these, you know, the steroids and suppressing the immune system and blah, 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 it's, it's a catastrophe. Yeah, I talked about uh, last hour because somebody had asked about nebulizing silver, for instance. So I showed them the nebulizer like this and how, you know, people have been coming to me for years asking this question. Some have been on an every antibiotic that, that exists and the lung issues are not resolving. And then we have them nebulize the silver and it resolves. The healing tissue happens, all of that. Now, I'm not saying, again, we talk about this silver is not a panacea. It has properties that were appropriate. It can address an emergency if you deliver it right. But then they're still rebuild because these patients, having been on multiple antibiotics for perhaps for a year or more, have devastated the home for their very immune system, the microbiome. So, yes, we can get people out of crisis even with natural, quote unquote, medicine or supplements. But that. You know, like this is where the head map becomes so important, I believe, Dr. Bittar, because it's not only about the most critical symptom, but it's about all of these things and how they how, what do they mean to one another? And then where do we go to restore integrity to the terrain, the environment in the French, the French say milieu, you know? And so how do we do that? And then people are always asking, how do I do that? It's like the head map. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, you know, the, the really interesting thing with the head map is that it's taken so many years, but it's been perfected. I mean, about as close as you can get to perfection, I'd say probably 98, 99% there. 
to being able to determine the correlation between certain symptomology and how it relates to functionality of those organ systems. And the entire focus is on the organs of detoxification because, again, it's those organs of detoxification when they get plugged up, when they get um, stopped up. Think of a toilet, if you will. If it's not flushing properly, it's, everything's going to get backed up. And that's where really most pathology comes from when our organs of detoxification cannot eliminate things that shouldn't be there. That's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's one of the things we're going to talk a little bit about uh, on the webinar coming up on Thursday, too. So Excellent. Um, yes. let's wrap that up. Remind, yeah, remind everybody how they can sign up for the uh, webinar this Thursday with uh, you and Dr. Lipton. And I'm, I'm hoping I, I should be – wait, is it this Thursday? It is this Thursday, and yeah, you're you're definitely Dude. supposed to be there. So, well, what time? Because local time, which would be six thirty my time, eight thirty uh, your time. Yep. I'm scheduled to do a live public presentation uh, on the on the science of silver at the uh, uh, Redmond Heritage uh, Farm Store of all places, where they can get raw, real milk. So, how long does this thing go? From what time to what time? It's going to go from uh, eight thirty till about uh, probably ten ten thirty. Dude, it's a plot. So when I get back from this thing, if the webinar is still going, then I join. Is that okay? I have to have the links because I don't want to miss any at all, but some of it I might have to at the beginning. Yeah, well, we'll have to do it. We'll talk about it, I guess, after the show. Okay. Dude, it's like somebody's plotting against me. Part, part We got Advanced Medicine Conference coming up too, so that's great. So uh, do they need the invitation code for Robert Scott Bell Show listeners, the 1358, to plug yep, in? Yep, absolutely. So if you're not registered then you'll have to go to Advanced Medicine and log in. If you don't have a login, you've never gone there before, then you're going to need an invitation code. But chances are most people probably already are logged in, Robert, from hearing about, you know, with the invitation code, the 1358. But in case you, mm-hmm. you're you new to the Robert Scott Bell Show and Advanced Medicine Mondays, then you want to go ahead and go to advancedmedicine.com and type in 1358 because it's only available. You can't get access unless you're invited. And so you'll be invited by the Robert Scott Bell Show to come in. And the first thing that you see when you get into the dashboard is the registration page for the webinar coming up this Thursday with Dr. Lipton and myself and Robert. Mm-hmm. And um, and now maybe half of Robert since Robert's going to be somewhere else. But um, <laughs> anyway, so that's that's how you can register, and you can do that uh, at any time. Okay, beautiful. By the way, going back to the microbiome story here, I mean, it is fascinating. Again, these are stories and studies coming out through mainstream medical hospitals, Baylor College of Medicine, and you know, they're observing big differences in the autism group who had gastrointestinal symptoms, um, but they didn't find a single definitive autism microbiome pattern, right? And I find this interesting, but I'm not surprised because we talk bio-individually all of, all of the time, Dr. Batar, that there isn't one microbiome that's ideal for everybody. Everybody's got nuances, subtleties that are different and distinct and uh, you know, finding what that is, I know there's a lot of investigation in the, in the medical circles to this thing called fecal transplantation. And if it works, I'm not going to dispute it, but I think that if we can heal the, the home for the microbiome, we could probably do it orally as well. But again, it, you know, the point being that the terrain, the law of the terrain, the thing that doctors are not taught in medical school is the thing that most, well, directly transforms the way you look at everything. Yeah, that's true. You know, this fecal implantation philosophy, somebody asked me about this, but they want to know exactly what that was. And essentially, what you're doing is you're trying to re-inoculate the bowel. Basically, you're trying to put in the bacteria, put in the species that are supposed to be there. So, in a way, 
the probiotics, when we take probiotics, we are trying to reinvigorate or re-inoculate new species or species of bacteria that should be there that have been annihilated from antibiotic usage or poor diet or whatever the case may be. Mm. So fecal implantation is basically bypassing the oral route and going the opposite way and implanting those bacteria, but doing it from a fecal standpoint as opposed to an oral supplementation standpoint. And the thought there is that when you or when you basically take in something orally, you've got to deal with all the enzymes within the saliva, and then it gets into the stomach and the hydrochloric acid, and the bacteria has to survive all these different components before it can actually get to the small bowel and then the large bowel, whereas through the fecal implantation standpoint, you don't have all those barriers of entry, so to speak. Yeah. And so, essentially, you can re-inoculate the ball that way. That's unless, basically unless all. You're, unless you're super, Don, you go, uh-uh, don't, don't even go near there. You're not going in there. <laughs> but the idea, of course, is what we call delivery to point of foci. That's a fancy way of saying get it right where it needs to go. And interestingly enough, I just saw a, a message come through uh, our friend Ula from Poland originally. She's terrific. Great listener here. And she says, uh, is it normal for parasites and biofilm to come out after enemas, of all things? Because there is legitimacy to utilizing clearing enemas or even hi- colon hydrotherapy or coffee enemas. We've talked about that. Specific to parasites coming out, flushing out, uh, or biofilms. Uh, have patients reported anything like that to you over the years? Um, reported what? The, the, the change in biofilms from the use? Well, that biofilms, evidence of biofilms moving on out or even parasites coming out. From the use of uh, probiotics? Uh, enemas, enemas specifically. Okay, yeah. Uh, it all depends too, Robert, what type of enemas, you know, a person's doing. From coffee enemas, type, that type of scenario, which we have patients that are undergoing our treatment for immune dysfunction, such as uh, HIV or can- uh, cancer patients, we do a lot of coffee enemas, for example, and sometimes people will report that. We have had other people doing some of the gut detox report those type of things. Um, biofilms... You know, it's hard to say whether when people see certain like things mucus, 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 mucus right. coming out, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like like sheets of uh, looks like plastic or, or mucus, as you said, or um, something that's translucent that that seems to come out and you know looks like a plastic bag. I mean, those could be biofilms without actually uh, analyzing it. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to say, but yeah, there's definitely weird things that come out. And the, my rule is this. If something weird comes out of your stomach, instead of being worried about it, be grateful that it's no longer it's in you because it's weird. And so we know that it's not, you know, it's not supposed to be there. We don't know what it is, but it's out, and that's good. Right. And, of course, uh, you know, the strategies that I've implemented and you've implemented over the years to repair the integrity of the lining that has been so damaged. And, and you know, the, the biofilms we hear about in terms of, uh, like, uh, bacterial colonization and protection of its own, let's say, microbiome or inhabit- inhabited area. Again, what can we do to establish that? I mean, there are botanicals. Yes, people are using drugs. We're, we're using silver, all of these things. Sometimes when you're doing that cleansing, you know, whether it be directly through an enema or even through oral means, that people do report, my gosh, what's coming out of me, whether it be parasites or other things. So I don't say that it's normal or abnormal. It is what it is for you, depending on what's in there that needs to get out. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing that we want to reestablish the norm. And if these things are coming out when you're actively trying to clean your system out, then it's a, it's a relatively safe assumption that it's not supposed to be there, especially when after it comes out, you start to feel, you may feel not so comfortable in, immediately, but within a few hours to a few in a day or so, you're going to feel better. And so 
the whole idea, the word detoxification essentially is to pull things out that shouldn't be in the body and leave the things that are supposed to be there to, to be able to function the way they're supposed to function. And there's a lot of stuff inside our systems that is not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And that's why my focus is, and I've said this many times, Robert, you've heard me say this in, in conferences, that I, I don't consider myself anything more than a glorified trash man. I'm going to <laughs> the body and taking out the trash. Yes. And that's really what it comes down to. So this one, what we're talking about with the biofilms and with the parasites and all these other, you know, the mucus and, and whatever else coming out, that's a form of trash. When we talk about heavy metals, that's another form of trash. It's a different type of trash. When you talk about the persistent organic pollutants, that's another type of trash. These are all different types of garbage that are in the system that shouldn't be there. And they all have an impact on how our body works. If we can effectively detoxify the body, get rid of all these different types of trash, and, and our focus with the head map is to look at the organs of detoxification primarily, like the, all the trash in the kidneys, all the trash in the liver, all the trash in the gut, all the trash in the skin, and then all the secondary sequela from that trash accumulation and how it affects the body, such as adrenal glands and, and systemic pH, et cetera, et cetera. If you can effectively eliminate the body of this trash mm-hmm. through this process that we call detoxification, then by definition, chronic disease cannot exist. And that's the philosophy. Here are reports, again, coming back to re, uh, let's say rebuilding, repairing the microbiome. Some more of the direct route with these fecal transplants. Again, the uh, links in the show notes. This one actually goes to WebMD, this article we were talking about. Uh, published in Scientific Reports, found that fecal transplants helped ease gastrointestinal problems and improve behavior in kids with autism. Now, what is the gut link to behavior? My gosh. I mean, how many of you have ever had, uh, uh, let's say, gut inflammation, pain, whatever? Does it alter your behavior? Hell yeah, it alters your behavior. Your gut controls so much. You're doubled over. Your behavior is going to change. And I know you know this, as many doctors have reported on the extreme pain that a lot of these severely autistic children have. They can't communicate it in the same way, but they're doubled over. And obviously, they get violent trying to resolve something they can't resolve. That's another aspect of behavior related to gut. Yeah, Robert, this is one of those things that, first of all, you have to address the gut with any type of chronic disease, especially when it's like hormones or uh, adrenal issues, stress, uh, neurological issues. You have to address the gut, no doubt about that. But I remember when Dr. Rimland, before he died, had wanted me to come to uh, the Dan conference, and I wasn't going to come. And then he had he talked to Abby. Actually, Abby was, I guess, three years old and four years old. And and um, Abby said, "Dad, why don't you go?" And I was like, I took the phone back from Abby. He wanted Dr. Rimland to ask to talk to him, and I said, "That was that was pretty un- underhanded." I mean, it was Rimland was a great guy, and he really, really believed in what he was doing, and I appreciated him for that. But there was a lot of political fallout, if you remember back then, you know, 13, 14, 15 years ago with this autism stuff and after my congressional testimony. And one of the things that happened was that I, when I went there to Dan at the think tank group, um, they gave me a microphone. And for the next two solid days, I was grilled by all the think tank doctors, about 40 of them. And I remember one of these doctors, I won't say his name, but he's a, I don't, I don't have uh, many kind words to say. He basically made the comment, he said, well, you know, you got to first take care of the gut before you can start doing, you know, dealing with the heavy metal issue. And this is something that I would normally say you have to always deal with the gut. But here's the thing. When you deal with the gut before you deal with the mercury issue, you're never going to get the gut working because the mercury is shutting down everything. Mm -hmm. And so the gut is critical. But if you've got something that's like, for example, when I'm dealing with a cancer patient, okay, I will start getting in a stage four cancer patient that's already a multi-organ system. I'm not going to worry about de- detoxing the gut at that point. 
I'm going to first make sure that their airway and the breathing and the circulation is stable and get the lymphatics moving and give them some certain things to help them survive the next five to seven days before we start dealing with things like the gut. Okay. So here's, here's the reason I'm saying this in a chronic situation. If the gut is not addressed, the person will never recover. However, in an acute situation, or in a situation where the chronicity has gotten to the point of shutting down that system, unless you detox the body from that substance that's causing that shutdown, mm-hmm. you are like a dog chasing its tail and you're never going to get anywhere else. Let me expand on that, something that you brought up here on this show and lectured on as well, which also put you not in good stead with certain people at these conferences, hyperbaric oxygen, right? Oxygen, uh, oxidation therapies that have le- legitimate uses and benefit when done appropriately but as your point to your point same thing if you're not removing the heavy metals particularly the mercury and you increase oxidative stress through you know hyperbaric oxygen introduction that can exacerbate the already inflammatory oxidative uh, damage caused by the mercury that's still there is, is that a fair interpretation uh no robert it actually isn't you said it may and it's not may it will yes. that is a fair representation but okay. you're absolutely correct so when you're breathing normal air, you're breathing between 20 and 21% ambient oxygen in, the, in normal atmospheric air, assuming you're at you know, ground level, sea level. And when you put somebody into a, into a chamber, you've now got 100% oxygen. So if you divide 20% of oxygen to 100% oxygen, that's a five-fold or 500% increase. So now what is the mechanism of action of all the seven toxicities, heavy metals, persistent organic pollutants, every type of damage, it's free radical damage. And free radical damage is secondary to oxidation or oxidative injury, or the, what we call the reduction reaction in chemistry, which is also, for those that don't know exactly to, how to visualize that, take an apple, cut it in half, and in five minutes, it'll turn brown, or a banana, it'll turn brown. That is the rusting reaction. It's rusting. That's oxidative injury. That is the reduction reaction. That's what's happening all the time. That's what oxygen creates. Now, when you put somebody into a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, you're going to have five times as much oxygen that's contributing to that process. Here's the problem. The heavy metal in the child, whether it's lead or mercury, whatever, mercury is the, the, the big one, we know that, that causes denudation of your fibrils. It's causing that oxidative damage. And now you put five times as much oxygen, you're going to accelerate the damage five-fold. So to do hyperbaric oxygen therapy in a child that hasn't been detoxed of metals is like taking gasoline and pouring it on a fire and then expecting the fire to go out. It's absolutely idiotic. You might get a temporary uh, improvement, maybe a couple of days to a couple of weeks. That's like throwing a bunch of gasoline. You know, the fire will go down and go, boom, then it comes back up. That's exactly what's happening. You cannot, you cannot use hyperbaric oxygen therapy in a situation when heavy metals are still on board. And uh, the guy that testified alongside with me who was testifying about hyperbaric oxygen therapy had sent me some patients that had Alzheimer's. And we act, he said, you know, it's kind of strange. Every time this, these guys come in, he had a pretty wealthy person who had Alzheimer's, started treating him, got him better, but it lasted maybe six months. And then he had to come back in again, start doing the treatments again. The next round, he only lasted three months. The improvement only lasted for three months. And then he started deteriorating again. The third time, it only lasted a month. So he sends them to me and says, you know, I don't know what's going on because he gets better. But then each time, after each round of treatment, uh, it, it keeps on, he deteriorates again, and the treatment doesn't last as long. So I don't know what's going on. It's like he's never been chelated. He's never had the metals out of his body. We took the metals out, you know, we treated him for about a year, and then he went through another course of uh, hyperbrakes. By the way, we didn't do any hyperbrakes with him. We just treated him for about a year, and he started, his cognitive ability started coming back, and then they took him to a hyperbaric round, 
Mm-hmm. And it was like huge improvements. And then that course lasted about seven to eight months. And then he came back and started doing more, uh, more IV treatments. My point being, again, exactly as you said, it's the oxidative injury that is the key. And if you do treatments that are going to increase that oxidative exposure, you're going to increase mm-hmm. that oxidative damage, and that's going to accelerate exponentially the damage being caused by these heavy metals. Yeah, and that doesn't mean there's never a, a benefit or an appropriate time or place for oxidative therapy. Sometimes in cancer therapies are used. Sometimes in infectious situations, it can be appropriate. But you know, right. I, we, we use them in, in autism too, but it's part of our brain recovery protocol. It's a second phase. Mm-hmm. And, and about 85 to 90% of the kids, we never need to go to the brain recovery phase. But once they've been t- totally cleaned up from the metals, or as much as we can for after a year, year and a half, and we have two tests that show back-to-back very low metals now, that's when we'll bring in the hyperbaric. So there's a definite use for it, but it's when you use it. You know what I mean? I mean, gasoline is a very important thing. It allows us to power generators and cars. But when you've got a fire in your house, you don't want to go out there and try to put that fire out with the gasoline. It's just going to make the fire burn worse. So it's that type of scenario, having the tool and knowing when to use it, right? Or like you said, people blame tools, right? They blame spoons for obesity, guns for violence, blah, blah, blah. It's, it, you can't blame the tool. you got to blame the user. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. We have to know, the user has to know when to use the tool and when not to use the tool. Hyperbrakes is a very effective tool when used at the right time in the right situation. Yeah, and, and that's why also uh, we're big fans, supporters of uh, hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, because it has, you know, a cooling of oxidative damage. You know, when the inflammation is so high, the, the neutralization of free, you know, the, the, the hydroxyl radicals, for instance, and the science to support its use even in autism. So, again, we have tools. We use them appropriately. And, again, these are the things we're going to be doing at the Advanced Medicine Conference, everybody. You've got to be there with us. And let me just point out something about the hydrogen aspect because this is very important for, for people to understand. A free radical is is when you have um, when you end up having a a, um, a charge, a net positive charge, and the hydrogen it basically helps to it's it's like a um, electron proton. It helps the electrons donation. and protons donate exactly. It's a donation type scenario so that the electrons and protons become balanced. And you don't have an issue anymore with a net positive, net negative charge where, where, the, where the atom is now destabilized because it, has a, it doesn't have a net neutral charge. So the hydrogen ends up helping to create a net neutral charge and stabilizes the atom so that there's no more free radicals searching for an electron from a surrounding atom to pull away and create you know, other types of habit. Beautifully said. And again, these are the things you will learn at the Advanced Medicine Conference, including... Uh, deeper level discussions of belief and how it manifests your reality differently, how you can alter your genetic expression uh, by what you believe in what you do. It's very empowering, and it certainly fits along with the, the overarching theme here of the Robert Scabell Show, uh, The Power to Heal is Yours. Again, a gentle, powerful reminder for all of us, including when I say it for me, I don't ever want to forget it. Having been grown up in an allopathic medical family, where we were victims of our genes and whatever diseases and ailments that we were drugged for. We had to come through that. I had to come through it. And that's, again, why we do what we do here with Dr. Batar and have such an alignment and purpose, mission, and spirit. And we have a good time doing it, too. We do. We do. It is fun. Yeah. Are we in that 10th year now or 9th? Oh, uh, let's see. 20, yeah, I mean, I guess this is our 10th year, technically, entering the 10th year. Yeah. Decade. I guess it takes a decade before you get good at something, right? You should be I there. I right? got the timing down like you've got it down, Robert, but then you do yeah. it six days a week. You're the professional. I'm just, you know, the peanut gallery. 
Well, we still got a little time in the show, and, and I don't know, as busy as you are, I, if, if I would tell everybody what you're doing behind the scenes, they would go, go take a nap, Dr. Batar. But I don't know if you want to hang out for a few minutes after the show to answer some more questions. I'm debating uh, on how to use our remaining time. We still got at least uh, about 10, 12 minutes uh, before we're wrapping it up here officially. Yeah, we can, we can stay on answer some more things yeah, okay absolutely. good all right so i know some people have submitted questions super don i'll ask you behind the scenes to gather and collate them so we can answer them uh once we are uh, in extra innings as we say okay. now here's an interesting about uh bedside manner we've had talks about this right because some people have said oh i love dr batar or at a certain point they're like oh man that dr batar man he was really tough and you know at the same time uh, you know those uh, nuances of how you interact with patients differ from patient to patient to some degree because it's dependent on what you feel or what spirit is communicating to you. This is what will get through. Otherwise, you've got to send them on their way because like the patients that come in, you know, have this defeatist attitude, I'm going to die. I believe what other doctors have told me about how much time I have. So there's an article here about doctors who ha- are, are kind have healthier patients who heal faster, according to a new book. And I'm thinking... What about, I mean, kindness, I get well, all about kindness, but there are times where we need our butts kicked, that I needed the proverbial two-by-four to wake me up and go, you know, kindness is not going to work right now. you got to hear this message, and you're not getting it with the whisper. You know what I'm saying? Robert, this is, comes, this is something that is so important. I'm, I'm glad that whoever found that story, if uh, Super Don chose that story, I'm, I'm really glad that he did because... It really comes down to what a person's willing to do to achieve a result for their patient. Customer satisfaction is a massive, massive thing in the in the hospital industry. It is a massive thing. Doctors are constantly under scrutiny for wait times and you know patient satisfaction surveys and this, that, the other. I remember before Abi was born in 19, let's see, he was born in 1999, so this must have been 1996, 1995, um, the hospitals have had these feedback mechanisms where patients would basically rate their doctor, not from the outcome, but whether the doctor uh, pleased them or not. And I notoriously pissed people off. Like if a smoker <laughs> came in and had asthma, you know, I was in there facing, are you stupid smoking cigarettes and you got asthma? I mean, you know, or somebody would come in. Of course, I didn't say, are you stupid? But, you know, after the third or fourth time, I would. I would tell them, you know, you know obviously, <laughs> there's something else going on here. But I remember a, a case where a mother had a baby, and this was the fourth emergency room visit in less than 10 days. And each time the child had been given a course of antibiotics, and each time the child uh, would, would just get worse. And four different types of antibiotics. And this was back when, I mean, as far back as 20-some years ago, there was articles, there were articles in the emergency medicine journals talking about the indiscriminate use of antibiotics in the emergency medicine literature 20 years ago. You know, we're talking about that now, but in the emergency medicine literature, they were talking about it two decades ago. And it was one of the articles that I just read a few weeks earlier had said that 75 to 80% of all ear infections were actually viral and were being treated inappropriately with antibiotics. Well, it made sense, right? Because you have these kids that come in, recurrent type infections. So this child's been in four times for an ear infection in the emergency room in less than 10 days. Mom comes in, she's very upset. I examine the child. I tell the mom, and the, you know, there was erythema in the external auditory canal, but there was no pus or anything behind the tympanic membrane. 
And uh, so I told him, plus the child had been on four freaking types of antibiotics. I mean, this is the last thing the child needed. So I asked the mom, I said, how do you feed him? And she goes, what do you mean? I said, show me how you feed the baby. So she shows me how she feeds the baby. She cradled the baby, and then she would give the baby the bottle. But the baby was basically in a recumbent position. So I said, try to incline the baby. So it's at least a 45-degree angle. Put the baby up a little bit closer to your shoulder and feed the bottle by feeding it down so that the, the, you know, the throat is connected to the ears through the eustachian tube. And I didn't want the milk backing up into the station tube and creating that type of problem, thinking that that would probably help, and told the mom, you know, it's a self-limiting type thing. The courses of antibiotics that you've already taken, you know, will basically annihilate anything. There's nothing that's alive inside your child now that you worry about. It's impossible that there could be anything else. And um, reassured the mom. Well, the mom, of course, complained because I didn't prescribe another antibiotic. And it just so happened that this woman was the neighbor of the hospital administrator. And the hospital administrator came down and, of course, very aggressively questioned me and and. I didn't understand why people get so intimidated by hospital administrators. Here, all these doctors, they all have doctorates, and then you, you're intimidated by somebody with such a bachelor's degree in management, but starts running a hospital, and everybody gets all freaked out, right? So this guy comes down, and he says, you're going to prescribe an antibiotic. I said, excuse me? He said, you're going to prescribe an antibiotic for this lady right now. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you prescribe the antibiotic? Oh, that's right. You didn't have a degree to get a license to have the authority or the privilege of being able to decide what kind of medicine somebody gets. That's right, because you're not a doctor. So get out of my face. And, of course, everybody's moving aside because, like, oh, my God, this guy can fire you and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, he did try to fire me, you know, half a dozen times. But the ER director would fight for me because I was his fastest doc with the lowest flyback rate. But the point that I'm making is that this type of mentality of customer satisfaction and, and having that paramount and supersede practicing good medicine, that's a sad, sad state. It's more important to make a person feel happy and not upset them rather than to get them happy. I make patients get unhappy all the time because my job is not to make them happy. And I tell them that my job's not here to be your friend. It's not here to stroke you or make you feel good about the stupid decisions you're making. It's to slap you verbally and wake you up so that you do what you need to do to get better. And, you know, I think we talked about this on the air a couple, a couple of months ago where I had a patient that talked to my ex-wife before she, before we got married and, and was starting to talk to her about, you know, you know, what do you think about Dr. Pichar, this, that, the other, blah, blah, blah. And we're seeing some, you know, negative things in the IV suite getting treatment. So my ex says to her, well, why don't you just, you know, if you feel this way about Dr. Pichar, why don't you find a different doctor? She didn't know that she was my girlfriend at the time. She goes, oh, well, I wouldn't trust anybody else to take care of my health, you know. I, so they people appreciate that bold communication. Mm-hmm. I actually had, I actually had two of the, two, the only people that I've screamed at, patients, they were both bigger than me. One was six foot six and one was six foot nine. And we were literally screaming at each other. And both of these patients were two of the patients that would refuse to go anywhere else because they trusted me. But, you know, they were also used to intimidating people. And I was like, you know, wh- wh- I-, I don't give a crap. I want you to get better. And if you don't want to get better, routine, I have this line. If you want to die, that's your choice, but you're not going to die on my watch. So I'm going to discharge you and you can go do whatever you want to do. So, no, no, Dr. Tar, no, no. And then they'll change. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of strange when a person is not willing to change their habits for themselves, but they'll do it because they don't want to upset their doctor. I mean, I, I kind of felt pretty good that I had that much power over them, but, you know, whatever it takes. And a lot of people don't need that. They don't need that harshness in the face, sure. but some people do. Yeah, and that's the point. You know, you've got to be sensitive as the healer, if I can say it in that term, because the true origin of the word physician, doctor, is teacher and healer. 
Uh, and, and, you know, we can't do a one-size-fits-all approach. Not everybody, as you said, needs the proverbial two-by-four. Some people need more of the, the I need to hold, just hold my hand, right? Listen to me. Uh, be empathetic. And, again, there are patients that will respond to that. You just got to find out who they are. Now, my mentor had some of the worst bedside manner. I'm talking brutal, brutal. You think about the things you just did, times 100, and people would talk about it. But at the same time, he got results. Yeah. He got results. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, I, you know, I, I don't tend to want to be mean and nasty, but there are times Super Don has heard, you know, on the phone when, when he calls in. I'm talking to somebody anonymously at that point that, that I'm getting stern with people, and, and, you know, they don't know that side well, of me. I've, I've heard you get stern with people. You've, you've heard, and, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Not, and, but it isn't and, like and I don't. You do. yeah. Are you willing to love the person enough yeah. to, you know, it's called tough love is what it is. And. It's, it's a lot easier to stand back and not say it, but I mean, I have to ask myself, if I don't get into the situation, yeah. yes, I will avert a conflicting, a conflicting situation, but have I really done the best that I can to help this person get better? Right. right. Here, here, the way I've said it, and you've heard me say this before, God loves me enough. God loves me enough to allow me to suffer, to learn the things I need to learn. Because some people say, you know, those are the big, you know, existential questions, spiritual question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm like, Dude, if I didn't have all the illnesses and ailments and sicknesses, if the doctors hadn't lied, and again, I'm not saying that all the doctors lied. They really believed what they were telling me, but they weren't truthful in terms of how the world really works, that you know, I wouldn't learn the things I've learned. So I've, I've become to a place of gratitude for suffering, and you've seen it too. People who have had cancer and who have overcome it, I, mean, I don't know, not everybody does, but those who have, they end up talking about with gratitude what That's the illness the brought to them spiritually too. That's the common denominator. Yeah. Those that have actually been successful have seen the blessing that came to them. And so people say, how can he see cancer as a blessing? Well, again, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to start living because if you're not going to live, if you mm-hmm. fail to live, if you refuse to live, you're now just existing. And existing is a slow deterioration called decay. When growth stops, decay sets in. Death is nothing more than acceleration of that decay. And so they have, those people have been grateful because they heard the call, they woke up, and they started living. And this happens to all of us. Okay, This is, in fact, now we're getting into the topic of part of what we're going to be talking about on the webinar and also a lot of the things that we're going to also talk about at the Advanced Medicine Conference because this is where that power to heal really comes in, Robert. This is where the power to heal is yours, comes in, because your thought process dictates whether or not you're going to get better. Your body is a slave to the mind, and if your mind is not straight, your body will never be straight. If you have a disease process, you must start looking at your mind first because there's something going on there. I am a firm believer in this. And I also believe that if your mind is straight, that your body, as a slave to the mind, will end up following those commands because disease, disease can't survive there because you're too busy. You, you, you've got too much to accomplish in, on the planet. So it's all, I think the disease is almost like a stagnation. Your cancer is a stagnation of the lymphatics. I think all chronic disease is a stagnation of, of chi, of life energy, yeah. and it that causes the, the sequence of events to begin. Yep. Maybe I'm getting a little too esoteric here, but... No, it's good. It's good. To, let's end on some esoteric then. And uh, we uh, have, again, Advanced Medicine Conference coming up Memorial Day weekend, and that's in Pasadena, uh, California. I plan to be a couple of days at Autism One in Chicago prior to that, getting there in time, and... We've got some great lectures coming up. Good folks uh, participate, especially Dr. Bruce Lipton. Uh, what an amazing guy. You've never seen him in person. It is a life-altering, in a positive way, experience. Uh, so I'm encouraging that. Also, this Thursday, I'll be lecturing live in, in Orem, Utah, 
and the uh, webinar will happen. I'll get back from that and join in toward the tail end of the webinar with you guys as well. And uh, if you've got a few more minutes to do some extra innings with us, Dr. Bittar, uh, uh, Super Don has collected a couple of two or three questions from the uh, sure. audience. All right, sure. so tell them what they need to know because we got to go temporarily, but we'll be back in just about three minutes. The power to heal is unequivocally yours. <laughs> 